Go ahead and be turning in your Bibles to Luke chapter number 7. Luke chapter number 7. And um, last week we were looking at what impresses Jesus. And we found that as Jesus was going about, that uh, there was a man that came that had a need. And he said, if you'll just speak the word, you don't even have to come to my house. I'm not worthy. If you'll just speak the word that my servant will be healed. And whenever Jesus heard that, it says that he marveled. It got his intention. It was something that stood out. It was something that impressed him. And so what we looked at last week, that it's not our religion that impresses Jesus, not all of the religious activities we engage in. It's not our righteousness or our self-righteousness, but it is our faith that impresses him. That's what gets God's attention is whenever we will simply put our faith in him, whenever we'll trust in him for all things. Not just for the matter of salvation, but in our day-to-day life, whenever we're truly trusting and depending on him, then that gets his attention. That's what he is going to be marveling at. And so we are in a section of Luke here where Luke is kind of uh, compiling some evidence for Christ. He's putting forth several different examples, telling about different happenings. And we told last week that uh, John wrote in his gospel that if he would have uh, written down all of the things that Jesus had said and done, that the world itself would not contain the volumes that would be written. And that the things that we find in Scripture are a sampling. They're uh, just a selection of things that were chosen out of all of the works that God had done, all the works that Jesus done while he was on this earth. And they were put there for a purpose, for a reason. And as we're in this section of Luke, uh, it is showing that uh, Christ has power for everything that we, we face in our lives. We saw that he's got power over disease. Uh, last week we saw he has power over distance. And this week we're going to see that he has power over death. And that is a great thing for us because if we are believers, if we are saved, then our hope is that uh, this world's not the end of it. Our hope is that after this, there is a place that he has prepared for us and that where he is, there we may be also, that there is a resurrection, that there is a life after this death. And so we need to know that Jesus has power over death. And so as Luke is recording all these things, Jesus is doing these things specifically to give evidence, to prove that he is who he said that he was, that he's capable of doing what he came to do, and so that we may believe upon him. And so as we look at this, we're going to see next week that uh, John the Baptist faces a time of doubt. Of all people, John the Baptist doubts, right? But Jesus still is not uh, overwhelmed or overcame just because uh, some of his believers struggle. He deals with it with great grace and great patience. But this week what we're going to see is Jesus comes into a little village by the, the name of Nain, and he turns a funeral into a festival. He takes and turns sorrow into celebration. So Luke chapter number 7, and we're going to begin down at verse number 11. Luke 7, starting at verse number 11. It says, And it came to pass the day after that he went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him, and much people. Now when he came nigh to the city, or to the gate of the city, behold, there was a dead man carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and much people of the city was with her. 
And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said unto her, Weep not. And he came and touched the bier, and they that bare him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say unto thee, Arise. And he that was dead sat up and began to speak, and he delivered him to his mother. And there came a fear on all, and they glorified God, saying, That a great prophet is risen up among us, and that God hath visited his people. And the rumor of him went forth throughout all Judea and throughout all the region round about. And the disciples of John showed him all these things. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings. We thank you so much for this time that we have in your house, Lord, for the the time we've had to fellowship, Lord, for the testimonies we've heard, and just for your many blessings on us, Lord. So grateful for your people, Lord. And we just ask you, Lord, that you meet with us here today. I ask you, Lord, you'd help us through your word. I pray, Lord, that you'd just guide me in my thoughts, Lord, and help me to say the things that are going to be helpful and encouraging. And Lord, we just pray that you would work in the hearts of each person who is here today, that you'd do just what's needed. Lord, you know the the needs, the concerns, just whatever is going on. You know all of these things, Lord. And uh, we just put it into your hands, Lord. We're just desiring you to work. And Lord, we do ask you just to work in us and through us uh, for your honor and for your glory. And all these things we pray in Jesus' name and amen. So in this passage, Jesus does what uh, he often does. He changes everything. Uh, He comes into town and it says that he's got a multitude that's following him. His disciples are following him. And so one crowd meets another crowd. Okay. And the disciples are following him, listening to him teach and uh, interested in his miracles and all these things. And as he comes into town, there is a funeral procession. And in that culture, uh, what would have happened then is really a lot similar to what would happen today, not just there, but other cultures also. But a funeral would be a time of great sorrow, of mourning. It was a very loud, a very uh, uh, public display. And whenever someone died, of course, they didn't keep them uh, keep their body out on display for very long. Very soon after the death, they would be making it to the place of burial. And all along the way, people would be gathering in. They would be mourning. They would be wailing. They would be singing funeral dirges. They would have musics and lamentations. All of these different things going on at this funeral as they're carrying the body out to where they're going to inter the body. Mm-hmm. And this would have been probably a several days long uh, mourning process, but it would have kicked off with this procession, this burying of the body. And uh, everyone was heavy. Everybody was sorrowful. Everybody was weeping. Everyone was mourning. And Jesus comes into town with all of his disciples. And as he sees everything that's going on, he decides to do something about it. Mm -hmm. And so he does really what would have been unthinkable to the Jews. He walks up to the, the equivalent of the casket, okay, the, the coffin, okay? Yeah. And he puts his hand on it. The reason I say it'd be unthinkable is for a Jew to come in contact with a dead body or what was containing a dead body would render them ceremonially unclean. Right. But Jesus knew that this was only going to temporarily house a dead body. Right. I mean, who could argue with him and say, oh, you touched a dead body? No, the guy's alive. <laughs> what dead body? Show me the body, right? But anyway, he comes up, he touches the the coffin, and the people who are carrying it stand still. And he speaks to the man in the casket, into the coffin, showing us that 
that body, that person doesn't cease to exist just because life ends, right? And he speaks to the man and says, arise. And it says the man sat up and he began to speak. Now, I would like to see this. We talked about this a little bit in Sunday school. I would like to see this. I want to know what this man said. You know, if you've been dead for a little while, Jesus suddenly resurrects you, puts life back in you. What's your first word going to be? <laughs> you know, it, 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 it's funny in my mind, just thinking of this, letting it play through in my mind. But the man sets up, he begins to speak. The Bible doesn't record his words. I can imagine the first words are probably, what happened? Right? But we find that there's three different occasions in the Bible where Jesus resurrects someone, raised him from the dead. There is uh, Jairus' daughter that's resurrected. There's Lazarus, and there is this fellow here. And uh, whenever we see this, Jesus doesn't make it a habit of raising people from the dead. And one of the reasons why is Jesus knows what happens after we die, right? Right. I think I would have been a little bit upset if I'd been Lazarus. He'd been dead for three days, four days, right? And so that means that he got to experience what happens after death. He got a glimpse into the hereafter. And could you imagine he's just walking down the streets of Golden Olive's like, nope, you're being called back. I don't, know, I don't know who delivers the news. And he's like, no. I guarantee you'd live different if you saw heaven. Maybe a little bit carelessly. I don't know. It's like, oh, a bus. No. Um, sorry, that was inappropriate. But anyway, so Lazarus saw the hereafter and he came back. And I have to wonder part of the reason why Jesus wept wasn't just in joining in with their sufferings but also knowing what he was bringing Lazarus back from. He's like, oh man, i got to bring him back to this place. But we see that Jesus was able to do this. He was able to breathe new life into these people who had been dead. And one of the reasons why he did it in this situation, I believe, is we're told a little bit about this, uh, this man and who he was. We don't know his name. We don't know how old he was. We don't know his occupation, what kind of life he had. But what we do know is that his mother was a widow, and that he was her only son. Now, for those who was here on Wednesday night, we talked a little bit about the situation of a widow in Bible days, that there wasn't a dole system, there wasn't a welfare system. And so for a widow to be left without an heir, without a son, with no fam male family members to take care of her, she would basically be destitute. She was going to be in danger of severe poverty. She was going to have a struggle the rest of her days. And she had just recently ended up in this situation. We don't know if it was a sickness that caused it, if it was an accident, that uh, maybe he was out working and had a heart attack. We don't know what happened. But we do know that the funeral would happen very quickly after the death. And so all of this was new. All of this was fresh on this woman. And she didn't know what she was going to do. She didn't know what was going to happen to her. And Jesus knew all of the concerns in her heart. He knew all of the situations and circumstances of her life. He knew what was going to happen to her socially. He knew what was going to happen to her financially. And as he looked on this woman, he had compassion on her, and he raised her son. And so she was no longer destitute. She was no longer alone, and she was able to be cared for. She was able to continue in this, uh, in this relationship, in this uh, relationship with her son, where he's providing for her, he's taking care of her, and so she's not left alone. And so this is a great thing that Jesus does in her life. And so what I want to point out from this, and what stood out to me as I was reading over this, 
is this very fact in verse number 13. It says, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. He had compassion on her. And this is something that we find throughout Scripture. The word compassion is mentioned 20 times in the New Testament. Not all of them dealing with Jesus, but most of them are. But compassion is something that really defines Jesus. It defines his earthly ministry and what he was about. And we can see this going through all the way through his ministry. Everything that he did was because one of his chief characteristics was the compassion that he had on mankind. Now, the word compassion means having sympathy or empathy, being able to feel what others are going through and having a desire to do something about it. Mm-hmm. You ever feel just feel bad for someone and then that's just the end of it? That's not compassion, that's sympathy. But compassion is actually having a desire and having an ability even to do something about the circumstance. We find in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. It's talking about Jesus there, that he is able to relate to what we're going through. He's able to be touched. He's able to feel. He's able to understand our infirmities. Not because he has infirmities, but because he is able in his compassion, in his empathy, to know what we're going through. When we're troubled, whenever we're struggling, whenever we're uh, in over our heads, if you will, Jesus knows what it's like. He can empathize and he has compassion on us. He cares about all of our needs. The Bible says casting all our care on him because he cares for us. right? And so he cares for us. And so I want to look for just a little while on the compassion of Jesus. Okay? And the first thing that I want to point out here is the compassion for the temporal. He doesn't just care about the eternal. He cares also about our temporary needs, about our needs of this life, of the things that we're going through on this earth. Uh, He is characterized by his compassion all the way through his ministry. He's always looking out for the needs of the people who are surrounding him. If we turn over to uh, Matthew chapter number 9, We're going to look at a couple of these times that Jesus has compassion. Matthew chapter 9 and verse 36 says, But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. And so as he looked at the multitudes that were uh, trying to find their way, trying to figure out what was going on, trying to navigate life and religion and all the things of that day, he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. Now, being here in Ireland, we, we see plenty of sheep, right? Most of the time they don't have shepherds. Why? Because they have fences. Right. Right. And so they've got people who are shepherding them by putting them in an area where they're going to have everything provided for. They're going to be kept safe. Thankfully, here they don't have very many predators unless there's dogs in the area, right? Right. So there's not very many predators for them. They're relatively safe. But in Bible days, a sheep without a shepherd was basically on a death sentence. Mm -hmm. A sheep without a shepherd had no leadership, had no guidance, didn't know which direction it was going, didn't know where to find food, didn't know where to find water, and could not defend itself against the predators. And so as he looked over all of these people around him, He saw them as sheep without a shepherd. We need guidance. We need leadership. We need someone to help us and to direct us in our lives because we like to think that we're in control. We like to think that we're wise, that we know what's going on. 
But here's the truth of the matter. There is very little that we have control over. And I bring this up fairly regularly, but there's so little that we have control over. This is something that I talk about with, even with my girls as they're growing in different things and thinking about the different decisions that they're going to make in their lives. But here's, here's what happens. There is so many other ways that our lives intersect with others and other people's decisions have an effect on us. And nowhere is that more clear than in marriage. Whenever two people get married, you may have the best of intentions. You may have everything figured out. You may know what you're like and what you're going to do, but you're entrusting your life to that other person. And if they make a decision, it can completely ruin what you've got going on. All it takes is for them making one decision to completely wreck your life. That makes marriage sound horrible, doesn't it? That would be a fearful thing. If I get married, they make one decision. It can completely wreck everything that I've ever done. So why would I ever get married? Well, here's the thing. This is why it is important who you marry. And most important, that God guides you to who you marry. Because we need a shepherd to guide us and to lead us and to put us in the right circumstances. Because while I have no clue what in the world she's going to do 10 years from now, God knows. I don't know the decisions that's going to happen. I don't know what's going to uh, transpire in our lives. I don't know uh, what temptations there will be. I don't know what tragedies there will be. And I don't know what responses that we'll have to those. But God knows all things and he does all things well. He is our shepherd. We need him to lead us, to feed us, to guide us, to direct us, to protect us. All of these different things that God wants to do. And so he looks down on us with compassion. He cares, and he says, I want to shepherd you. I want to care for you. I want to lead you. I want to guide you. I want to look out for you. Right? That's his compassion. He says, I see this need you have. I want to do something about it. I have a desire. I will take care of that for you. We turn over a couple of pages to Matthew chapter 14. We have a multitude again. Matthew 14 and down at verse number 14. It says, And Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion toward them, and he healed their sick. And so as he was going about, there were multitudes that would begin following him, and he was attracting all of the people who were in the worst of conditions. He was attracting those who were outcasts, those who were sinful. He was attracting those who were diseased and those who were destitute. And as he looked on them, it says that he had compassion on them and he healed their sicknesses. And so not only is he looking out for the shepherdless, he's looking out for the sick. He's looking out for our health, for our daily needs. And I'm not preaching health, wealth, and prosperity, okay? It's not always God's will for us to recover. It's not always God's will. Sometimes he teaches us through the sicknesses, right? Right. But even in that, he has compassion, he has purpose, he knows what he's doing and can be trusted. And so whenever we are going through difficulties, when we're going through hard times, whenever, uh, whether it's our health is failing or whatever physical limitations and needs we have, God has compassion and he's willing to take care of us either through it, in it, or taking us out of it. We find the disciples as they were in the storm that Jesus was asleep in the boat and they came down and they woke him and they inquired of him, Lord, carest thou not that we perish? Do you not care about us? Now that's 
a bold question to ask the Lord. Whenever we realize he is compassionate, of course he cared. But in the different times that the disciples are found in the storms, there are times that he goes with them through the storms, and there are times that he calms the storm. But both ways, he is with them, taking care of them, providing for them, and seeing to it their needs are met because he is a compassionate Savior. And so he's taking care of our temporal needs. He's taking care of our life down here on this earth. We look over just another chapter to Matthew chapter 15 and verse 32. We've got the multitude that has tarried with him many days, and now they're hungry. It says Matthew 15 and verse 32. Then Jesus called his disciples unto him and said, I have compassion on the multitude because they continue with me now three days and have nothing to eat, and I will not send them away fasting lest they faint in the way. And so not only is he compassionate on the shepherdless and on the sick, he's also compassionate on the starving. We're looking at temporal needs here, and he says they are doing without. They are in need. They cannot provide for themselves, and I'm going to take care of their needs. We are challenged in uh, uh, whenever Jesus is talking about uh, the sparrows and the flowers and all these things. He said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. He says, these are the things that the Gentiles seek after. These are the things that the lost man takes up all of his time, all of his energy, the things that he is anxious about, the things that he is worried about, the things that he is concerning himself with and expending himself for. This is what they are after. But your father knows what things you have need of. And so he tells us that if we are following him, if we are desiring him, then he's going to make sure that we have what we need, whether it's financial, whether it's uh, whether it is monetary, whatever it is, uh, even our health, our well-being, our leadership, our guidance, our direction, all of these things, he is more than capable of taking care of the matters of this life because guess what? He cares for us. The second thing that I see here is the compassion is not just for the temporal, but it is also for the eternal. If you'll turn with me over to Mark chapter number 10. Mark chapter number 10. It would be great if he just took care of us throughout this life, but he's not just interested in this life. He's interested in our eternity. And I'm thankful for that. That in Mark chapter number 10, starting with verse number 17, I'm not going to read this whole passage, but in Mark 10 and verse 17, it says, And when he was going forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled to, kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. Thou knowest the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, defraud not, honor thy father and thy mother. And he answered and said unto him, Master, all these things have I observed from my youth. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him. This man comes to Jesus, and he is concerned about eternal life. He says, what good thing must I do that I may inherit eternal life? This man asks the wrong question. 
He says, I want to earn it. I want to do something to be able to obtain eternal life. And so Jesus says, okay, what are the commandments? What does it say in the law? And he lists these commandments and different things. And the rich young ruler says, all these have I kept from my youth up. And Jesus tells him, you lack one thing, sell what you have and follow me. See, here was the thing. He had a dilemma going on in his mind. He was caught between masters, between God and mammon. The Bible says you can't serve two masters, God and man. And he upheld his riches, and it had become his God. Even though he says that he kept the Ten Commandments, he did have a God before God. He did covet, right? And so in this, we see that there is no man righteous. There's no one who has earned eternal life. There's no man who can uh, earn eternal life by his own, that we all need a Savior, right? And this is what he's trying to point out to this man, and he's trying to get this man lost so that he can get saved. That's one of the hardest things that we can do whenever we're trying to share the gospel with people. They need to realize they need to be saved. They have to get lost before they can be saved. And that's what Jesus is doing here. But the part that I wanted to point out is that Jesus uh, looks at this man, and he loves him. He loves him. There's not uh, any kind of a history of him following after Jesus. There's not any history of him doing anything to earn this. It's just the fact that Jesus loves him and he has compassion on him and he desires for him to have eternal life. And so this is what we find in this. Jesus beholding him loved him. Now we turn over to John chapter number four. John chapter number four. We have another story here. I'm not going to read it. But we have the story of the uh, Samaritan woman. The story of the Samaritan woman. And as the Jews, we've talked about quite a lot, the Jews hated the Samaritans, right? And the disciples would have loved to go around Samaria. But in this passage, it says that Jesus must needs go through Samaria. And that's kind of an odd passage, kind of an odd phrase, uh, because the Jews never must needs go through anywhere. But Jesus says, I have an appointment I have to keep. There's someone that I need to meet here. And as he goes through there, uh, in the heat of the day, he sits at the well. The woman comes out. And as he's talking to her, he's explaining to her how he is the source of living water. He is the source of eternal life. He says, I'm going to go where the Jews won't tread. I'm going to speak to the people that the Jews don't like. I'm going to uh, inconvenience myself. And I'm going to come to this place and talk to this woman that not even her own people like because I have compassion on her, because I love her, because I want to see her saved and forgiven. I care about her eternal soul. And so we see Jesus doing this all throughout his ministry, but with the rich young ruler, with the Samaritan woman, with John chapter number eight, the woman caught in adultery. We won't turn over there, but you can uh, take note of it if you want to. But in John chapter number eight, there the religious leaders bring a woman out, said, we've caught this woman in adultery in the very act. The law says that she should be stoned. What do you say about it? And he says nothing. He stoops down on the ground. He begins writing in the sand. And preachers down through the ages have had a field day with trying to decipher what he wrote in the sand. And we don't know. The Bible left it out for whatever reason. Maybe so that preachers could have fun with it. I don't know. But he began writing in the sand, 
And all of those who had the stones in their hand fell under conviction. He tells them, he who is without sin cast the first stone. And they all realized that they were under sin, that all of them had sinned and come short of the glory of God. And one by one, they begin dropping their stones. And Jesus never even raised his head. And after they've all left, he looks at the woman with compassion. He looks at the woman and says, where are those thine accusers? He says, they're not here. And he says, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. We see his compassion. He is looking out for her eternal soul. He's wanting to see her come to him by faith. He's wanting to see her saved and forgiven, not stoned under a pile of rocks in condemnation, right? And so he has compassion on her. And so more than temporal needs, Jesus was concerned about eternal needs. And he went out of his way to go out and confront those who were soul sick, those who were suffering, and to extend to them an offer of eternal life. He wanted them all to be saved. The Bible tells us that God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God is compassionate on all men. The Bible tells us in John chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That is God's compassion on this lost and dying world. There is not a single person he wants to die and go to hell. There is not a single person he wants to be separated from him. There is not a single person that he doesn't desire to meet that most basic and core need of saving them. Even the thief on the cross is a great example because we find as he was hanging on the cross that he was railing on Jesus. You ever read through that and realize that the thief that was forgiven was the same one that was also mocking and ridiculing Jesus just earlier? And then he finally realizes, wait, there's something different about this man. He listens, he observes, and he says, I believe he really is the Son of God. There is something different about him. And he calls out his, his fellow conspirator over here and says, we deserve what we're getting, but he has done nothing wrong. And he looks to Jesus and says, when you enter into your kingdom, remember me. He's acknowledging that Jesus' life isn't going to end on the cross. He's not speaking to a dead man. He is speaking to a, to a Savior. He's speaking to the Son of God. And he says, when you're ruling and reigning, remember me. He acknowledges Jesus for who he is. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in my kingdom. Right? Today you'll be with me in paradise. That's some compassion, isn't it? How compassionate are you toward those who mistreat you, those who do you wrong? You willing to forgive them even whenever they're in just previous breaths mocking and ridiculing you? Are you able to do that? But Jesus was compassionate. He was always looking out, not just to take care of their temporal needs, but their eternal needs. But as we continue in this, we saw the, uh, Jesus' compassion in the temporal and in the eternal. But we also see that Jesus' compassion is limited. Jesus' compassion is limited, not by him, but it's limited by us. It's limited by us. Whenever we look at the rich young ruler, Jesus told him about salvation. He was pointing out to him his inability to do good works to get into heaven, but he was unwilling to see himself in need of a Savior, and he stopped short of saving faith. He turned away in sorrow and left the Savior of mankind to go back to his silver and to his treasures, right? 
in Matthew chapter 23, down at verse number 37, Jesus is looking over Jerusalem. He is weeping over them. And he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent to thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Jesus says, I want to show compassion to you. I want to gather you up like a hen gathers all of her little chicks underneath of her and protect you and to guard you and to guide you and to take care of your needs. And you over and over and over, you refuse. And it limited Jesus's compassion. It caused it to stop short of him being able to do anything. Though the Lord is compassionate, though he is aware and desiring and able, his compassion, Passion is limited by our willingness to accept his help. You can't help someone who doesn't want help. Whenever the girls were young, and they're gonna they're gonna be mad at me for using them twice as an example in, in, in the service today, right? Whenever the girls were young, they would often try to do things that they thought were helpful for one another or for even me and Les. And they would come and they were saying, We're just trying to help. And I I had a phrase that I repeated to them often. And I said, help isn't help if it's not wanted, right? You ever have someone try to help you and you're like, just get out of my way. I don't want your help. That's not help. They have good intentions. They may have even been helpful, but the help wasn't wanted. Therefore, it wasn't help, right? Everybody follow me? And so with that, that limits the compassion. You can't do something for someone that doesn't want the help. And if I force myself, if I force my help on you, if I make you accept it, is that compassionate? Is that good? If God came to you and said, I'm going to save you whether you like it or not, isn't that oppressive? But God always gives us a choice. He always gives us a decision. If I come and I offer my help to you and you accept it, hey, that's great. If I come and I take over and push you out of the way and say, I'm going to do it for you, not so helpful. Right? And so that is the limit of the Lord's compassion. Whenever we reject Jesus, whenever we reject his compassion, Jesus must step back out of the way because that is the only proper response in love and compassion is for him to step back and honor and to respect the choice that we have made. As I said, it's not compassionate if it's being forced. And so for us as Christians, Jesus is not going to force himself. He desires to shepherd us. He desires to help us. He desires to take care of us. He desires to lead us in all these different things. He offers and extends that those blessings and those benefits of relationship with him. But yet, if we resist that, if we refuse it, then God allows that. God respects that choice that we have made, and he allows us to miss the, uh, the blessings. He allows us to experience the consequences and he, as a loving father, will chasten us as his children. He will bring about things to kind of guide us in the right direction, but he doesn't force, he doesn't make us uh, allow him to do these things for us. Our resistance is going to limit how compassionate he can be. For the lost, he's not going to force a single person to be saved. We can refuse his love and his mercy, his forgiveness, we can trust religion. We can trust our own works, our own goodness. We can will him into non-existence and say he doesn't exist. There is no such thing as God. But at the end of the day, he's still there. We can't get rid of him. We can't get rid of that fact. 
but he will honor our decision. The only thing is, is at the end of this life, you can't expect to assert your independence of him, to wish him away or try to do your own thing all the way through this life and expect to spend eternity with him. How compassionate would that be whenever you say, God, I want nothing to do do with you, and then he traps you with him for all eternity? If you assert your independence of him all the way through your life and say, I want nothing to do with God, I'm going to save myself, I'm going to be good enough, I'm going to merit his goodness, I'm going to honor, I'm going to deserve this, or I'm going to say that he doesn't even, whatever it is that we assert all the way through our life, and then we get to eternity and say, okay, God, now I want all of these things. Doesn't work that way, does it? For us to die and be trapped in heaven with him whenever we spend all of our life trying to get away from him. That wouldn't be compassionate. And so if we don't want him in this life, he will respect that. He will allow us to spend eternity with everyone else who sought independence of him, starting with the first one, Satan. The Bible says that hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. Never prepared for mankind, but if we decide to be independent of God with him, that's where we're going to spend eternity at, right? And he honors that. God doesn't send anyone to hell. He honors our decision because our compassion, or his compassion on us is limited by our willingness to accept it. The last thing I want to look at today is compassion must be learned. Compassion must be learned. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, Jesus tells his disciples, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. Let me go ahead and turn over there because I'm misquoting it. Matthew 11. Verse 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. For us as believers, we should be like Christ. But he says, take his yoke upon us. Now that's kind of a foreign concept to us today because the only yoke we know of is the yoke of an egg. That's not what he's talking about. Spelled differently, completely different thing. But in Bible days, there were uh, oftentimes they were using uh, animals to do their work, to pull their plows, to pull their carriages and different things. And in order to hook an animal up to an object, they needed to have a yoke to bind it to it. Oftentimes, they would yoke multiple animals together. You read about a yoke of oxen. That's a couple of them that have been paired together by this wooden frame that allows them to attach these animals to some sort of an implement. Okay? But whenever an animal was untrained, was uh, unbroken, if you will, didn't know how to go about pulling the yoke to, to pull these implements and things, they had what was called a training yoke. Anyone ever heard of that? Training yoke. And they would take and they would yoke uh, the uh, unlearned animal up with an experienced animal so that the unlearned animal would learn from the experienced one. They would yoke them together and the one would learn of the other. And of course, the one that was experienced would take on most of the burden, would take on most of the weight, and would take on the responsibility and would lead this one in the hopes that the untrained animal would become like the trained one. Okay, hooking them together so they learn from each other. And so Jesus is comparing here, and he says, take my yoke upon you. I know what I'm doing. I understand the way. And if you will align yourself with me, if you'll hook yourself up to me, I'm going to teach you and train you and guide you 
in the way to go. And so it's this learning relationship. I know we don't like to be compared to an animal, right? But it's this learning relationship. And he says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. I want you to learn from me. So where am I going with all this with compassion? As we're looking at Jesus throughout Scripture, we're seeing who he is through the Gospels. We're seeing how his life and ministry is marked by compassion. And we are his children. We are his followers. We are his disciples. That means that we should be following in his footsteps. That means that we should be identifying with him. We should be like he is, right? Often throughout Scripture, we're uh, finding that the believers are compared to being the body of Christ, and he is the head. And so the, the body carries out the wishes of the brain of the head. And so we are to be behaving according to how our head is leading and guiding us, and so we should be living like Christ, correct? We should be compassionate people. We should care. We should feel. We should be able to take our eyes off of ourselves and off of our own problems and look onto others and be touched, to be moved by the things they're going through and not just be touched and to be moved, but to actually do something about it. In Luke chapter number 10, we find that there is a lawyer that asked Jesus a question and says, what is the greatest command? And Jesus responds and says, well, how do you read? You're supposed to be an expert. You're supposed to know what's going on. And he says, to love the Lord thy God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Okay? And it says that the lawyer, willing to justify himself, says to Jesus, but who is my neighbor? If I am commanded to love my neighbor, I don't want to love anyone I don't have to, so specify so I can limit it just to the ones that I have. That's, that's our mindset. I want to know my limits. I want to just do enough to get by, and that's it. So he says, tell me who my neighbor is. And Jesus responds with a parable. Anyone know what the parable is? Story of the Good Samaritan. And he says that there was a man who was traveling. He fell among thieves and robbers. They took all this stuff. They beat him and they left him for dead. And soon there came through a priest. And the priest moved away from him, excuse me, moved away from him and went on by and didn't want anything to do with this beaten man. Maybe he said that's what he gets for traveling alone. The roads are dangerous. Right? Maybe he said, I don't have time. I've got places to go. I'll leave for someone else. Whatever excuse was, he kept on going down the way. He didn't want to get his hands dirty. Soon after, a Levite came through, same story. Didn't want anything to do with it. And then came through a Samaritan. We've been talking about them quite a bit. The Samaritans were the outcasts. They were unloved and unwanted. And so Jesus makes the one who is outcast and unwanted, the one that is hated, he makes him the hero of the story. And he says the Samaritan stops, checks on this man, nurses his wounds and puts, pours wine and bandages it up, puts him on his own animal, takes him to an inn, stays with him for a little while, seeing to it that he's starting to recover a little bit. He pays for the innkeeper to continue to, to watch over this man and to continue putting this man up until he is healed and able to go on. And he says, if he incurs any extra charges while he's there, then the next time I'm through, I will pick up the tab. And just leaves it open-ended. He says, I'll pay for all of it. And Jesus asks the man and says, which one of these was the man's neighbor? And he said, well, the Samaritan. And his response to these men was, go ye and do 
likewise. Go ye and do likewise. And so that is a command not just for them, but for us as well. If we are to be like Christ, if we are to follow his word, if we are to carry out his example here, then we should be people of compassion. We should be people who are caring about those who are around us. That doesn't mean that we ignore sin. It doesn't mean that we gloss over it, that we uh, sacrifice the truth in order to uh, show love and compassion for people. We are to speak the truth in love. Whenever we look at Jesus dealing with the rich young ruler, did he gloss over his sin and just say, well, God loves everybody and it's okay. You can live however you want. Is that what he said? He dealt with his sin. He dealt with his need, but he did it with compassion. With a Samaritan woman, did he say, you can worship however you want to. It doesn't matter that you've had five husbands and the one that you're with is not your husband. It doesn't matter your situation, your circumstances. Uh, just accept your right on him. He dealt with her sin as well, but he did it with compassion. We come to the woman caught in adultery. Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. He dealt with her with compassion. And if you look at your own life, he has dealt with you with compassion. He has not given you what you have needed or what you deserved, but he has given you that which you need, right? He has looked on you with love and compassion and concern. He has cared for you time after time. Even if you are not saved or even if you're not living where you need to be, God is still caring and compassionate regardless of where you are. Even those who reject him, he is still showing love and compassion toward them, but he is limited by what they're willing to accept. And so for us, we should be compassionate to those that we come in contact with. One of the most compassionate things we can do is share the gospel. We see a need that they have. We know of the fix of the cure for that need. And we share the gospel with them, but it's going to do them no good unless they accept it, right? And so as we look at this, we need to be marked by compassion. We might put a lot of uh, emphasis into uh, outreach and different things. We might talk about sharing the gospel and all this, but all of that is for naught unless the heart and the mind of Christ is in us. Unless we are living in tune with the message that we are preaching, then it's going to be of no use. We need to be like Christ if we are going to be ambassadors for Christ. We need to look out on these people who we are seeking to be a witness to and look on them with love and compassion, not contempt and condemnation. It doesn't mean that we overlook their sin, but it means that we have no right to condemn them, but instead lead them to the solution for their problem. Are they all going to accept it? No. Are they all going to accept us? Are they all going to treat us well? No. But does that give us an out? Does that tell us that we don't have to have compassion, that we can cease loving, that we can start lashing out in bitterness and hatred and all these different things that oftentimes mark religion? No. Because first and foremost, we need to be like Christ, to give out the message of Christ. And before we can do that, we need to love and have compassion on those that we're interacting with. And that's something that's missing in this world today. That's something that's missing in Christianity. That's something that's missing probably in all of our lives is that we get so focused on our own agendas, on our own lives, and on the things that we're doing. We fall into judgment and criticism and compassion goes out the window. And if we're going to be like Christ, 
we're going to have to be compassionate. So my closing thought on this. Jesus cares about us. He's compassionate. He's capable of taking care of our needs both now and in eternity. But if we reject him, whether you're a Christian, whether you're lost, if you reject the help that he is offering, he allows you to do so. Yes, you're going to suffer the consequences, but it's not because that he isn't willing and that he isn't willing, it's that you would not. And so for us as Christians, we need to look to his example, we need to look to what he has done, and we need to seek to have that love and that compassion in our lives so that we can see accomplished the things that he desires in us and through us, and sometimes in spite of us. And so Jesus is compassionate. Lean into that, trust that, bathe in it, if you will. He loves us. But go ye and do likewise. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings. We thank you so much for this passage that we've looked at here and, and kind of got a start from. I know we, we kind of launched off into all these different places, but Lord, it's just amazing to me so many times in Scripture it talks about you being compassionate and even places it doesn't mention compassion uh, itself. We can see it demonstrated. We can see how compassionate you were to those that you interacted with. Lord, help us to be compassionate to those that we come in contact with. Help us, Lord, to accept that love and that help that you've extended to us and not continue to assert our independence, but, Lord, to depend on you and allow you to work in and through us. We thank you so much for all that you do. We ask you to work in the hearts and lives of people here. If there's one today that don't know you as their Savior, I pray that today would be the day that they would accept that salvation, Lord, that you have extended, that they would finally yield, Lord, to uh, what you are desiring and seeking to do in their lives, and that they would allow you to do that work. Lord, we thank you so much for all you do and all you're going to do. In Jesus' name I pray, and amen.